0: Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World, we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine assisted field. This can be psychological this can be neuro psych this can be physical this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines these beautiful horses that we work with help us with thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show Welcome back to Equine Assisted World, where we talk to people who are at the cutting edge of this remarkable profession that we're in with horses helping people physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Never has the world of therapeutic stuff with horses been as interesting as it is now. Now that we understand so much about the nervous system, the brain, and know more with each year as more and more studies come out, what started as just adapted riding for people with physical disabilities 60 years ago has now evolved into a mosaic that can be very confusing for many people. And our job is to shine a light on the people that are out there doing really interesting work. So I'm talking to one of these people today. She's Shay Stewart, and she lives in Texas. And interestingly, up until now, up until this interview, what we've been emphasizing on Equine Assisted World has been the work that people are doing with people, with horses. We haven't really touched much yet, but we will be doing more and more on the well-being of the horse that does this work. Because of course, if a horse is having to deliver well-being to a human, to a monkey, well, it's got to have well-being itself. Otherwise, it will have no well-being to give. And we know that, that traditionally in the therapeutic riding world, All that was really asked of a horse was to be quiet. But if a horse was aching, if a horse was hurting, if a horse was sour, that wasn't really considered to be a problem because as long as it was just safe and quiet. Now, of course, more and more, we want our horses to be athletes, to be happy, to be healthy and to be joyous in their movement, which means that they've got to be really treated the same way that you would treat a competition horse, just with less stress. And this is something that's creeping in more and more to the therapeutic world, the realization that crop lame, arthritic horse is not going to be able to do the job very well. And also, it's just not right to make a horse like that carry people around on their backs or do that sort of work. However, there's much that can be done with horses that are aching in pain and so on to put them right and to get them good in their bodies and their minds again so that they begin to dance again. And we certainly do that with Horseboy Method and Athena, our programs with a massive emphasis on the work in hand and long reining and lunging when appropriate to muscle the horses up and get their brains going again and rejuvenate them effectively. But there's more to it than just that. And Shay Stewart, who's on today, is an equine craniosacral person who does this very successfully all over the place. And I first heard her on Warwick Schiller's Journey On podcast and then was lucky enough to meet her and hear her at last year's, the um, 2022 um, Journey On podcast in in San Antonio. She was riveting. And she and Jim Masterson um, were both talking about ways of physical and neurological well-being for the horses that do our jobs. And I realized that When I went and had conversations with other people out in the equine-assisted world, well, yes, uh, osteopathy and um, having the horse chiropractor out, people are good about doing that kind of thing these days, mostly. Still not as much as I would like to see. But the idea of cranial sacral work is quite new to a lot of people. It's not new to me because when my autistic son, Rowan, was at his most severe, we did a lot of cranial sacral work and for sure it helped. We saw major neurological advances as a result of that so i do think it's something that any of us who are in this field want should know more about and we have an expert here to take us through it so shay thank you for coming on equine assisted world
1: thank you for having me it's so nice to see you and talk to you again and i look forward in our conversation it it takes me a minute to warm up to these so
0: yeah by the way for the listeners shay is famously and charmingly shy so my job is to dance around in front of her in a pink gorilla suit and to make her laugh so that she will relax. So I'm just putting on my pink gorilla suit now and I'm doing my little dance and uh, there she's laughing. Good. That's good. So Shay, to put you out of your misery, can you help us understand what is cranial sacral work? What is it?
1: That is the most common question I get. And even in my classes, people ask me, how do we, how do we explain this work to people? First of all, there are different concepts in within the craniosacral world. And so it depends on who you ask. Well, that will determine what answer you get about what is it. But it is a form of body work. It's very gentle. It's When you watch it, it may appear that the practitioner is not doing much. It's sort of like watching somebody read a book. There's not much going on on the outside, but there's a lot happening on the inside. And we focus on, in simple terms, we focus on relieving compressions and the craniosacral system, which is the skull, the spine, and the sacrum, and all the dura that's attached to the, these bones. What a dura? Excuse me?
0: What are dura?
1: Dura is like fascia that attaches to the inside of the skull bones, and it's what the spinal cord is made of, and it's all connected. So so the dura that's attached underneath the skull comes out through the base of the skull and goes all the way down the spine and ends around the second sacral vertebrae. And that entire piece is is all connected. It's like its own form of fascia. And that's where cerebral spinal fluid runs up and down the spine. So we work on relieving bone compressions and pressures on the dura that help the nervous system function in a balanced state. And it helps the flow of cerebral spinal fluid because that can get disrupted with any kind of head compression. That's basically like a, a short answer.
0: Of, right. So like, probably if we're sitting on a horse's spine, we're going to, with the best will in the world over the years, put some sort of stress on it. Just as if we're wearing a rucksack every day of our lives, we're going to put some wear and tear on our backs as humans, Right. And I presume that if we were wearing helmets every day of our lives or something like that with a chin strap or something, we would inevitably cause some sort of changes in our cranial our skull to neck attachment areas, right? And I presume it must be the same for a horse, that people aren't necessarily going out to hurt their horses. And they might be trying to look after their horses very well, but if one is going to sit one's monkey butt on a horse's spine and put something on his head to help to balance, direct, and do all the other things a bridle does, presumably, even with the best-kept horses, there's going to be a benefit to alleviating those cumulative pressures now.
1: Yes. Yes. Just the nature of how we handle horses. We're putting pressure on their heads. Even if we're the most gentle soul on the planet, we're still putting pressure on their head. If we're riding them, we're putting pressure on their spine. And there are muscles that attach directly in the base of the skull that attach directly to the spinal cord, directly to the dura. So any time a horse pulls against pressure pulls back while tied has something holding their head down you're gonna any time the fascia the superficial layer of fascia gets tight you're you're gonna restrict the deeper layers
0: let's just assume that not everybody listening here knows these anatomical terms. A lot of people will know what fascia is, but some people may not. What is fascia
1: fascia there's there's different layers of fascia. A simple way to look at it, it's like a living, moving layer that's the superficial layer is like a skin suit, kind of before our skin.
0: <laughs> the tissue that we find under the skin when we skin a deer, that white yep. stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it sort of seems to hold it all in place a bit.
1: Yeah, kind of between the skin and the muscle if you're peeling that apart and you can see that that layer that kind of keeps it all together, that's the fascia. And then there's different layers of it. So that would be superficial and then there's a middle layer and then a deep layer that holds all the guts in place and
0: how deep is the deep layer? Are we talking inches or are we talking centimeters?
1: Inches. It's deep within the body.
0: Okay. So, to so, work down the levels, you really you would have to go as deep as your thumb or as deep as your hand or something like that to reach the uh, stuff, or is it not that deep?
1: In a horse, if you went to the deep layer, say like the mesentery sac, which is the sac that holds the intestines, so that would be, I don't know, a hand. Hand width deep. Yeah, or something.
0: I mean, it's it's good for people to get these. that by the way, for those listeners who were not listening to our conversation before we hit record, <laughs> <this> <laughs> old place to live in Texas, a whole texas thing about holding horse's sacks. and yeah, sacrum holding their horse's sex again. Here you shame yes. out Well, shame on you.
1: Been yeah. out doing that sacral stuff.
0: That that sacral stuff. <laughs> so okay, so what is the job of fascia? What does it do? Why is it important?
1: Fascia. Well, you can even go deeper and in a deeper sense of fascia and and call lymph, blood, cerebral spinal fluid like a liquid fascia. I would cells,
0: say right. Hmm? Cells, the cells that make up the matter of of our organism.
1: Yes. Yes, it's like a living its own living, breathing, moving substance within our system that that moves fluid some people say it's that's what our acupressure or acupuncture channels are through the fascia
0: and so fascia back in the days before people thought about this sort of thing and we just thought well if you were stiff or old or You had an injury or you just toughed it out and we all grew up that way. I think we've all grown up toughing out our injuries. And those of us who've spent a lifetime on and around horses have been knocked around a fair bit and, and have bits of our body that have taken some, some knocks. One of the things which I realized in the last I'm 56. Now the last time I gave myself a goodly smash was actually not that long ago I broke two ribs but that doesn't almost doesn't count but That's I has a true horse fur <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was just in May but it's gone away now so instant amnesia. Yeah. the uh, but I did something to my knee um in 2018 which took a long time to come right and I couldn't ignore it anymore the pain was keeping me up at night and then I realized that the the pain wasn't really coming from the knee at all it was actually coming from further down the leg and someone pointed out to me that maybe having the fascia there loosened up and stretched out a bit might help and i went to someone to have that done and indeed the pain went away and when it comes back i sort of now know what to do to do that thing in the side of my side of my calf so i realized firsthand that as an older rider how useful and important these things could be which made me think about my horses of course and I'd always been you know someone who would get the back quack out I I like to have the chiropractor come to look at my horses every six weeks or so because they do a lot of work I like to give them the TLC I can give them just because I love them but I am now leaning more towards doing stuff with their with their Cranio, there's the the cerebral spinal fluid, which of course is the cranial sacral work, because through one of our programs, movement method, we've realised the importance of this. Can you talk to us about cranial sacral fluid and what its job in the mammalian body is, and why it's so important that it has a free flow backwards and forwards along the spine?
1: Cerebral spinal fluid. Well, to check a little bit, the the craniosacral the form of craniosacral that i focus on is biodynamic craniosacral
0: okay what does that mean
1: we we get deep into the fluid body so we we do cover a lot of embryology when we're studying and we so the way we look at the body is when you're an embryo we're a fluid filled sack and this fluid has intelligence and this intelligence is us that we we basically create ourselves so this intelligence knows what we're going to be what we're going to form into and so the biodynamic work and and this, this is that
0: what people would call dna Genetic codes that are coming in to program, program us up?
1: Are we, they in this fluid? We, we study embryology specifically within the first 21 days or so, before genes kick in, before, before all that comes in. So it's like a deeper intelligence. And this, this motion that creates us from our fluids is, is within us as adults. So, so embryology is not something that just happened to us. It's some we created ourselves, and and our fluids have a wisdom. So, in in the biodynamic world, we look at the body as a fluid body, and this the innate wisdom is inside that, and we just help help the our body find this their origins basically. So
2: go ahead. Yeah.
1: We do go a little deeper than cerebral spinal fluid, but cerebral spinal fluid is is formed in the ventricles and which are pockets inside of our brain. And it comes from blood. So the blood goes through the choroid plexus into the ventricles, which which are like where there's four of them. So we've got like four pockets inside of our brain, inside of our head, or skull. And blood comes through and it forms cerebral spinal fluid within these um, ventricles. And then it goes down into the spine. It's, a, it's at zero net gravity, so it's floating. It floats our nervous system and it helps cushion our brain. And it's a transmitter of signals. It sends signals throughout our body. It helps our body detox at night when we're sleeping. That's a a lot of the times when the detox happens. You have to forgive me because I'm still a little jet lagged. So my words get stuck.
0: You've been blocking that cerebral spinal fluid sitting in a cramped uh, airplane seat. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, got, it had too much pressure. It's not, not flowing well right now. So it transmits nutrients. It transmits... Like, it, it's If you think about water, like what does water do? It transmits electricity. It receives information and transmits it throughout the body. So... Cerebral spinal fluid nourishes our nervous system and helps helps it eliminate the toxins from the day.
0: And presumably we excrete it out with our pee, with our sweat, with our tears, with our...
1: Through our blood. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And then we create new. So do we create yeah. new cerebral spinal fluid every day? Yes. And so I presume, I also read that cerebral spinal fluid also brings the neurons that the stem cells of the neurons that create our brain cells, our heart cells, and our gut cells into place, like almost like a yes. conveyor belt each day because we're regenerating those cells every day. And yes. It's a very efficient conveyor belt that it sort of brings them down and they go kachung here in the brain, chung here for the heart, and then chung here for the gut. And then we excrete that out. We create some more cerebral spinal fluid in the next neurons come down when those old ones, the the next lot of old ones have to be taken to the waste basket. With all that in mind, I could now understand, I think, how compression that might affect the flow of that cerebral spinal fluid might be detrimental to well-being. Would that be correct to assume?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I have some, I know some people doing dissections and they're looking At this specifically with horses that have had a that seem to have a decrease in their cerebral spinal fluid from head injuries, head compressions, and they have the area seems a little dry, and we they're wondering about neurodegenerative diseases, even things like Cushing's. Okay, is that really about the pituitary gland, or? Could there be a component of cerebral spinal fluid that's not flowing being produced enough? And it's it's a in the, it's a great, it's also known as a crystalline matrix, a liquid light. So it's we could also look at it as one of our sensory receptors. It reads our internal environment and helps send signals all all throughout our system. So if that's failing, then our system isn't going to function. There's a man named Mauro Zapatera. Have you heard of him?
0: I have not, but I'm going to write it down. How do I spell Mauro?
1: M-A-U-R-O.
0: M-A-U-R-O. Zapatera. Is that a Z? Z A P.
1: Z A. Let me see exactly. I think it's Z A P P. Z A. P P A T E R R A.
2: Zapatera.
1: He is a, a medical doctor who, I believe, he studied biodynamic craniosacral, and he is studying cerebral spinal fluid and he has some really great lectures and he talks about how the neurons that our cerebral spinal fluid washes over are very similar to the same neurons that are found in invertebrates in the ocean okay so like sea worms or starfish and these neurons that these Im- invertebrates have read the oceanic environment. And that's how they, they know what's going on in their surroundings.
0: I see what you're saying. So it's a, it's a, it's a conductive fluid. Yes. Crystalline would mean conductive that therefore can transmit intelligences or signals that can be interpreted by the brain into intelligences, right? In the same way that an electric, a a sound wave sensor could, or a, because all of these things are vibrations at the end of the day, are they not? An electromagnetic, an electric electric charge is a series of waves. So Mm -hmm. if that's being conducted, through something like cerebral spinal fluid, presumably the cerebral spinal fluid must be reading or, or conducting signals that are coming in from other nerves, other stimuli to, presumably would that be to the autonomic nervous system? Is that where they would, is that where those signals would be delivered to?
1: I think- The, the vagus be...
0: nerve and, the, and then up to the brain?
1: The entire central nervous system, our entire nervous system, okay. but he even he even goes a little further and talks about how its cerebral-spinal fluid is a conduit of cosmic consciousness to our physical bodies. So not only can it read and send signals on the inside, but also on the outside and what's coming in.
0: Right, I'm looking. I'm I, as soon as you said, Doctor Zapatero, I began to Google him as as we're talking, and he is indeed a medical doctor and a researcher and a sports med- medicine physician in Pasadena, California. And yes, he is talking about consciousness mm-hmm. and this fluid. He's I happen to know he's not the only one in history. It's interesting when one reads the old Brahmic texts. And some people say that there's the Indian text, and some people say that the New Testament is in fact a an allegory of what goes on with cerebral spinal fluid, and that Christos Christ is the oil um, that goes up you know two and a half days at the beginning of each month, two and a half to three days it goes into the tomb, into the skull, and then comes back down with consciousness and so on what i what I do know is that or what I think I know, perhaps you can tell me if
2: I actually know this, is that
0: if enough cerebral spinal fluid surrounds the pineal gland in the middle ventricle of the brain, which of course all animals have, but but we have a really big one and it's called pineal gland because it looks like a pine cone. And it sits right there in the middle of our brain that inside that pineal gland are also crystals. Salt crystals, which can, with enough pressure on them, with enough cerebrospinal fluid pressing around the pineal gland, can then create an electrical charge, a small electrical charge. And that the pineal gland, I understand, produces melatonin, which governs our sleep cycle, and also, w- which is a tweak on serotonin. So it's the same chemical, but the pineal gland does a little tweak on it to. To create our melatonin, but then if there 's enough pressure from the cerebral spinal fluid around this pineal gland, that chemical that melatonin becomes something called DMT, which mm. is what makes us see angels and talk to God and that sort of thing and yeah. of course there, there, there are plants who, that create this like the plants in ayahuasca that the shamans down in the peru in the Amazon use and Certain types of things like morning glory and so on that are known to be heavy hallucinogens. They call these, you know, the God plants. Mm -hmm. And some people would say, oh, well, in that case, no one ever talks to God or see angels. It's just cerebral spinal fluid pressing on the pituitary, on on the pineal gland and causing us to interpret these electrical signals in this way as light and sound in our brain. And then other people would say, or does it allow you to see what's really there? Either way, it would seem to be at the very least important because it's bringing these neurons into place and also as you say acting as a sort of shock absorber brain cushion between the brain and the skull so mm-hmm. it seems to do an awful lot of things cerebral spinal fluid and i could see how getting in the way of it could be problematic
2: how do you unblock it
1: through craniosacral so the biodynamic work we we do have specific contacts that we put our hands on on the skull the spine the sacrum when you get into the more advanced biodynamic work the contacts are less specific and more covering the whole We believe that cerebral spinal fluid is moved by a field of motion that we call primary respiration. And it's some of the older biodynamic osteopaths or osteopaths talk about how there's a, a rhythm within our body and that this is what moves our cerebral spinal fluid, and even moves like our capillaries, because that our capillaries are not moved by our heartbeat. And
2: so, some of the—I mean—I can talk about the different rhythms if you'd like. Please.
1: Okay. I'll talk a little bit about the history and how this came about. So the, and anyone who studied craniosacral might be aware of some of this stuff. The man who created the first school of American, this first American osteopathy school, he was a medical doctor and he spoke fluid, fluent, I'm in, I'm in fluid brain. He spoke fluent So he was part Pawnee. And this was back when, you know, the settlers were taking the land from the natives. And his family was on land that also belonged to the Shawnee. And the land next to them was Cherokee land. So he, in in a sense, became their medical doctor. But I think they taught him more than he more than he helped because he he started to get very dissatisfied with the medical world and he lost some of his family members and he couldn't save them and he started looking at the the way to heal a little differently and he started this school where he focused on more physical aligning the body he talked about moving what he called nerve force and although he he doesn't he doesn't credit that he learned all this stuff from the indigenous people, it is pretty obvious that a lot of this work came from them, and he He often spoke as when someone would come to his him with a problem, he would say i'll take i'll I'll do it I'll take an Indian eye look at the body." So this was back when they when he, the the European settlers, the European land robbers, <laughs> however you want to call them. They looked colonialists, at Colonialists, let's say. Yes. Yeah, the colonialists, colonialists. They looked at the skulls as solid peace. And it was one of his students who saw some skulls, because back this was the, after the Civil War and there were human skulls everywhere. So they could just study bones. And he saw that the bones were actually meant to breathe. So our skull is joined in pieces. We have multiple skull bones and they're joined by what's called sutures. So little joints. And he saw that this looks like it is meant to breathe. And his words were like the gills of a fish. And so he started prying bones apart and looking at how they're joined. And he started this lifelong study of how this moves, what's going on in the body to cause all of this. And he concocted a helmet where he tightened different pieces of it that would restrict a certain bone in the skull. And then he would make note of where in the body this was affecting. And his wife was a great resource and helped write. He wrote a book. And I'll have, I would have to look up the book's name. It's out of print, but you can still get it. You can find it every once in a while. It's like $400. But it's, it's where he documented all the different changes in his body, both physical, emotional, and spiritual.
0: Uh, he did this to himself.
1: Did it to himself. What was his name? William Garner Sutherland.
0: William Garner Sutherland. Okay, please go on.
1: He's considered the grandfather of craniosacral. So even though we've learned that this is a form of bodywork that has been called, been titled craniosacral by William Garner Sutherland although it's been around since the beginning of time. Right. Since the beginning of human time, we've had the original healers who connected the source and helped the body find their origins. There's an ancient book in Chinese medicine where they state keep the when you keep the hips still, the sacrum the sacrum gets stuck the heart suffers so it's it's a concept that's been around forever but yeah. william garner sutherland it, and and most of these things get passed down through stories and you know wasn't written so william garner sutherland was the first person who studied it from his his mindset and wrote down what we now call craniosacral and he found, so he started working on people in this subtle way, and he found that, yes, there is movement in the bones. And he he found within himself that there was areas that would get restricted when, like, the frontal bone was, was not moving how it should, or the occiput, or, or whatever bone. And as his palpation skills grew deeper, meaning he could sense more in the body on a deeper level, he found that it wasn't the bones just moving, but there was a fluid moving these bones. And so he started working on the fluid restrictions of the body. And then as he he kept going in this work, he he started he was called one day to work on a dying man and he felt a presence in the room and this is when he realized that there was a presence that moved our fluids that moved our bones and this is what he called primary respiration or he ter- he he coined the term he called it the breath of life because he was a He was a Christian mystic. So they looked at things from the Christian point of view.
2: The Holy Ghost, effectively.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. This is interesting because, of course, as you know, that in in the Hindu tradition, you have Kundalini. Yeah. yeah, Which is the coiled one, you know, energy at the base of the spine in the sacrum that you can bring up. And then back down again for well-being, physical, mental, and you know, and and also you know, contact with the divine. The Bushmen of the Kalahari, the San, Khoisan people, who I have a lot of experience with, they talk about something called Numb, and rum is exactly the same thing, and they describe it the same, and they have a way of manipulating it into their abdomen and boiling it so that it boils as it goes up the spine, and when you touch them, they're becoming extremely hot to the touch, and and this is what they can then sort of effectively burn your illnesses out of you when they're mm-hmm. in this state And of course, they go into the spirit world this way and so on. but it all seems to come down to cerebral spinal fluid. When, as you know, when my son Rowan became verbal in the saddle in front of me through, and I noticed that the more collected the horse went, the more his hips moved and therefore it softly and in rhythm, the more he spoke. And I had this explained to me as predominantly the production of oxytocin, which is of course, a, not just a happiness hormone, but a feel about, about a communication hormone. But then I started also wanting to find out how I could do that when he wasn't on the horse. And that became the basis of something which we now call movement method, um, which I'm always wanting therapeutic riding people to learn because of course, most of the time that the person is with you, they're actually not on the horse. So what are you doing with the rest of that time? And I began to use a lot of sacral rocking with him and then with other people. Lying on the ground, you put the hand on the sacrum and you rock gently. And we began to call it the diaper shake because it reduced people to sort of a happy toddler stage, you know, within seconds. And I was giving a training. I was thinking, well, this is oxytocin, right? And then I was giving a training to a an autism dad from Canada and I we were doing the the diaper shake part of the training, and he said, where did you learn this? And I said, oh, I learned it from a a physiotherapist who showed me how to get walking again after a ruptured disc and seemed to work very well, but it makes you feel really good in kind of a similar way. I presume it must be oxytocin. He goes, well, it is oxytocin and serotonin, but it's more than that. He said, Rupert, I'm a a, um, spinal surgeon. That's my job, and I'm not just a spinal surgeon. I'm an engineer that designs instruments for spinal surgery and said in my spinal unit, whenever anybody comes and has had spinal surgery, or if they come with an injury, we prescribe this sacral rocking that you're doing because it makes you generate massive amounts of cerebral spinal fluid, which has all these effects that you've just detailed. And this was interesting to me because, you know, I had Gone to a cerebral, a craniosacral, very good craniosacral practitioner when Rome was much, much younger. And it had really helped. She would do it to him while he slept. And it really helped with some of his more agitated symptoms back then. And I began to put two and two together. So now, if we turn our attention back to the horse, so for example, Mm -hmm. if I see a person coming in who seems agitated and upset, I'll often try to get them to accept this diaper shake thing, knowing that it it will help. And if I'm feeling in any way agitated or upset, or even have pain in my body, I will ask friends or family to do it to me. So I can recognize behaviors where it could be helpful. Perhaps that's what you would call from William Garner Sutherland, looking with the Indian eye or, or whatever. Now, you are looking, Mm -hmm. your Indian eye, at horses. So Mm -hmm. let's say I bring my, I've got a little therapy herd of seven horses. And if I invited you to stay with me here in Germany, which I'm going to, because of course I want to completely plunder your knowledge, and I would wheel my horses out to you and say, okay, Shay, um, cast your eye on them and do your magic and let me know what you think they might need what typically do you see come up again and again just the kind of is there like a checklist of five things that you kind of always see with your average horse that's been a riding horse for x amount of years and do you have a sort of series of go-to's that you do as your initial work with these things before you go deeper like what 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 do you what do you typically see what are the patterns that you that you've notice that perhaps it would be helpful for us as horse owners and people who work with horses to also begin to look out for
1: like physically like if i'm standing there yeah, because they're they're going to show
0: initially anything through their body and their movement as as much as they would show it through their emotional state
1: Mm oh so Probably one of the biggest things I see is a dysfunctional posture. They may stand there, you walk out with the horse and the horse stops, you stop and the horse stops and they may stand there and, and look completely relaxed, but their posture to me says that their nervous system is not
2: balanced and
1: a posture imbalance is a big one, and I, I also see asymmetries in their face, swelling in their face that, that may, may not be obvious if you haven't seen them without it, but the, a typical posture imbalance would be when they stop their front legs or are more back behind them, so it looks like they're leaning over their forehand and their legs are not directly under their shoulder. I, I'll see the base of their neck looks a little dropped. The croup might be level or higher than the withers. The neck, their head may seem a little higher than it should in a relaxed state. And those are the biggest changes I see in craniosacral. The other thing I see are what I would call a headache look, which is the eyes. The eyes will be maybe drawn down, narrowed, darker. I'll watch how how are they engaging with their environment? Are their ears moving? Are their eyes looking around? I I watch eyeball motion. Like, if when you turn a horse one direction and they look, do their eyes track smoothly and have a full range of lateral motion? Or do their eyes stop at a certain point and then they tilt their head in an awkward position to look? Or when they're looking to one side, do their eyes make a weird skipping or tracking? To them, I see that a lot, and usually eye motion has to do with sphenoid bone compression, which is the bone that the brain sits in, and all the ocular nerves run through this bone, and so any tension in fascia can can pull on the little holes we called bramen that are in in the bones that the cranial nerves run through. Any, any tension in the fascia, any head compression can put compression on these, these nerves as well and restrict eye motion. I'll, I'll look at how are they holding their tongue. Does this, Does their mouth feel dry or does it feel too wet? Is there too much saliva in their mouth? Is there not enough saliva in their mouth? How are their ears moving? Does one seem to kind of look weak and not maybe move well with the other one? Do they move at all? Some horses just may stand there and their ears kind of off to the side. I look at how are they breathing? Is it just, can you only see motion in their belly when they're breathing? Or does their entire rib cage move even the muscles in their back should move when they breathe I watch. how are they holding their tail is it soft is it off to one side is it does it seem tight I look at their fur the hair on their coat should all go in the appropriate direction and Sometimes you'll see a weird patch of hair specifically on the neck that looks like it's growing straight up, but that's the fascia pulling the hair out of alignment, so to speak. Oh, look, does their coat seem dull? Does the hair seem like it's tight and flat on their skin, or is it soft and and fluffy and relaxed? Oh, look at how they're how they're landing on their hoof. Is it balanced? Do they stand too much on their toe? Those are basic things I look at.
0: Okay. And so let's say you, would you normally see all of those things or would you normally see, say, three of those things or five of those things together in a given horse? Do they tend to come in little clusters depending on the those are- type of horse or the type of work the horse has been in?
1: Those are pretty common things I see in almost every horse.
0: Okay, all of that together. Mm-hmm. And so what, what's your go-to? Where do you begin?
1: Well, I begin with myself. So in order to do this work, you have to get out of your thinking brain and be embodied. And
2: horses are highly telepathic and
1: I I have I have what I call a cycle of attunement exercises that I'll do I'll check in with my breath where's my brain I'll ground myself and then I expand out so I do a meditation where From my midline, which is our spine. I'll tune in there and I will expand out. Three feet from my body and I'll expand out through the barn. I expand out through the environment. And I invite this slower rhythm to present itself. And then I will go to a contact on the horse a lot of times i'll start at their sacrum or i'll start on their temporal bones and then i'll do that same cycle of attunement where i'll i'll check in with my breath i'll find my midline and i'll expand out and then With the flow of this rhythm that comes from nature, your mind kind of naturally drifts. So I'll get pulled back into their temporal bones. And I might hang out there for a little bit in my mind's eye. Maybe I'll track down their body. Most horses will tell you where they want you to be. They'll either tell you, don't leave my temporal bones. And they'll they'll show you that by when I do leave the temporal bones, they'll snap out of the zone they're in and they'll glare at me. Some will even pin their ears or they'll they'll toss their head away or they'll show me some sign that they're disconnecting. So I'll go back to the temporal bones and they'll go right back to where to that healing state that they get into. And it's usually, usually in the first few sessions with the horse, they're pretty specific with where they want my mind to be when I'm with them.
0: When your mind is say on the temporal bones or on the crumb, what are your fingers doing? What are your hands doing?
1: It's a very light touch, like the weight of maybe a sheet of paper. So I will wrap my hand around the temporal bone or I'll place my entire hand on their frontal bone. Some bones are a little deeper, like the sphenoid bone is deeper inside the skull. On a horse, on a human, you can feel it. But on the horse, there's a specific contact, and then you go in with your mind's eye deeper into that bone.
2: I presume when you
0: were... Learning to be a cranial sacral practitioner. Did you initially learn to be that on people? And did your tutors use these same techniques, these psychosomatic techniques that you're talking about with yourself? Or are these things that you came to in the course
2: of your career? Well,
1: I started receiving craniosacral in 1989, so I was 20. well, I'm 55 now. It's 21, 22, something like that. And
0: why did you begin to receive it?
1: So I was. My sister was a professional ballet dancer, and they were, you know, they always were getting some interesting form of body work, and this was. Before spas and massages were a big deal and maybe even before chiropractic. I mean, chiropractic was around, but there wasn't a chiropractor on every corner. And I was having um, migraines and a lot of neck pain. And my sister recommended this craniosacral therapist. And I just moved to San Francisco. And so I went to see her and... I did not know what she was doing, but it felt amazing. And I realized that my migraines were a symptom of a dysfunctional nervous system. And it, it changed my life receiving this. Um, so I was familiar with craniosacral before I started learning it. I was also familiar with tuning into nature, and I was also familiar with, I guess you can say, telepathic communication. The women in my family were psychically connected, and um, why? Hmm.
0: Why did they did they come from a particular tradition, or was it no, behind that somehow?
1: It just. I don't know my mother my mother died when I was eleven, so I would love to talk more about this stuff with her. She was into Sufism, but that wasn't until the last couple of years of her life. My grandfather's grandmother, I believe it was his grandmother was Cherokee, and so he had a he just had a different way of looking at life, he hung out with, with indigenous tribes in the Amazon and up in Alaska. And so he would tell these stories and the, the women in my family were just all connected. Like they would send each other messages and there wasn't any kind of tradition or ceremony around that. It was just, you know, my mother would say, oh, I need to talk to you know, her cousin, I'm going to go think about her. She'd go outside and kind of tune in. And then, you know, an hour later, my cousin would call and, or whenever the phone would ring, they all knew who it was. They'd pick it up and go, oh, hey, you know, so-and-so or whatever their name was without even saying hello first. So that was, that was kind of part of some of my upbringing. And then it kind of went away a little bit when my after my mother died. And when I went and got my first craniosacral session, a lot of these things that I had forgotten about came back. And so it was a form of body work that I was always seeking to receive. And it was hard to find back then. And it was around 2006 or so that I started studying it on horses. And I met a lady who came to, I had a horse facility in the Santa Cruz mountains in California. And I was studying all different types of body work. And I met a woman who taught equine craniosacral and To answer your question, no, none of this was talked about in those initial classes. Got it. (laughs) That was a long answer, but no. It was a
0: great answer. And I do see that there's an indigenous tradition line coming through here, both within your family and, of course, within William Garner Sutherland. And that I I begin to see these patterns coalescing that are traditionally traditional esoteric bodywork that's now coming to the Western mainstream. Talk to us about your horse background. Why were you in horses? Why did you have an equine facility in the Santa Cruz mountains? How did you get into horses? What were, what's been your horse journey?
1: I, when I was about six or seven, I met my first horse and was completely obsessed. And my dad had had horses as a child and rode, and this was in Texas. And so they put me in lessons, and about a year later, we were had moved out to the country and we had horses. My dad, I had a horse, my dad had a horse, my brother had a horse. I had horse people in my family, and I was taking jumping lessons. And we lived so far out in the country that there weren't many kids, and I preferred. Being around animals anyway. And so that's how it started. And I rode things, things kind of went awry when my mother died. And I lost uh, the love for much in life. You know, it was like just a shell of a person. And then In my twenties, I started riding again, and I was leasing horses. And it was a matter of time. I just I ended up with a horse, and I was had a knack for them. I was just good around horses, and I could. I was really good at horses that were troubled and heightened. I could. I was really good at bringing them down. And I started, I bought a place out in the Santa Cruz Mountains when the area was depressed because of the earthquake in 89. And right after I bought a house, the area boomed. And the place where I kept my horse, they decided to move. And so I was able to buy it. It was really run down. Yeah, I had, you know, I got a deal because it was needed a lot of work. And that's when I started training, and I had a mentor that I met, probably in the late nineties and he was just amazing. He really worked with the horse's thought he talked to he talks about directing their thought, helping them feel better about what's being asked and that's who I studied from and I would spend like five weeks a year in Arizona bringing. The most messed up horses you could think of. And because that's how who came to me, people, it, I was like, the last straw. Can you fix this horse? So that's how I got into hoof trimming and saddle fitting and body work. Cause it all, it all, you know, you have to know, you can't just train the behaviors out of them. And, I did that for 15 years or so.
0: Who was this mentor? What was his name?
1: Harry Whitney.
0: Harry Whitney?
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He you, is... In Arizona. He used to be in Arizona. He travels all over the U.S. and teaches clinics. He's still around. He's, he flies. Yeah, he's still around. He flies under the radar. He, have you ever heard of Tom Dorrance? Yes. Okay.
2: He was friends with Tom. So. Okay. How did you meet him? Hmm? How did you meet him?
1: He, when I first moved to the Santa Cruz mountains and the first thing I did was look up a place where I could ride horses and like the first or second week I was there, he was coming for a clinic. Ah, Okay. And I didn't even know what a clinic was. This was before horse clinics were a thing. Yeah. And, and the woman who owned the place said, do you want to sign up for this clinic? I was like, sure. <laughs> so that's how I met Harry.
0: And what were you doing for a living at this point? You weren't a professional with horses at this point, were you? Or were you?
1: No, I was not. I was a flight attendant.
0: Okay. And you did that for a number of years, I presume.
1: Yes. I got that job. I was in college and I was knew what I, I wanted to get into art therapy and I wasn't being very supported from the parents. Uh, my dad and his wife thought that was just nuts. And so it kind of killed my confidence of what do I want to do? What do I want to study? And so I thought, well, I I needed a new reality. Mm. I needed a needed. I knew I was not in a good place and I needed something I needed to change my reality. So I ended up I I knew a woman who was a flight attendant and her husband was a pilot. And I thought, well, that that will be a cool job to get me out of here and go see the world. And so I started that when I was 20.
0: I could also imagine that it would lead to quite a lot of exhaustion, jet lag. And if you you were, if you were compounding that with grief from this untimely death of your mother, that at a certain point, your body might take you by the scruff of the neck and give you a bit of a shake. Did that indeed happen? And, and... Did craniosacral, is is that partly why you sought out craniosacral for yourself?
1: Yes, that's the, it was, yeah, the migraines were debilitating mm. and craniosacral was, it was life-changing. It was like that part in the, you know, the movie, The Wizard of Oz, when it's black and white and then she gets to Oz and everything's in, in this vibrant color. Yeah. That's what I felt like after my first session.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I'd like to lead the conversation into some some practical areas because those of us who work with horses all the time, we want our horses to feel as good as they possibly can, particularly if their job is to transmit well-being to other people. But also, as I'm sure you know, in the therapeutic world, we mostly deal with donation horses and people donate horses for a reason. Usually they come fairly messed up. And so, as I said, at the beginning of this conversation with Horseboy Method, with Athena, with our mounted, with our horse equine programs, we spend a lot of time with lunging in hand work, long reining work, giving horses crazy time, free jumping, lots of trail riding, lots of unmounted work, lots of just rebuilding them and rebuilding them. We get good results, but we're always looking for how to be better. I asked you also about certain patterns that you see when horses come in front of you. So I definitely see a certain number of patterns. We now have over, you know, probably over a hundred locations that do say horse boy in the world. And I'm always going out to them and there's their new crop of donation horses and go, yeah, 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 yeah. So I could identify sort of five or 10 things that I see regularly. Could I, and I'm sure a lot of listeners do, could I ask you about those things through your lens and perhaps you could give us some insights into what could be behind them and what could be good approaches for them? Mm-hmm. I think people would find that very helpful. Could, could I start with the first one? The, the, the first thing we almost always see is
2: congenital weakness
0: in the loin and the stifle that, lead, that shows itself almost as, 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 a, as lameness, but not quite. And mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time strengthening those two parts of the horse. But we definitely notice that almost every horse that comes in front of our eyes has this
2: why is that do you think and what's your go-to there i think they get weak there from
1: a posture imbalance and how they're ridden And any kind of head compression can cause this weakness. It'll throw off their posture. And so you get on them and, or you do in-hand work and you you train, try to train the correct muscles. But if their nervous system is not regulated, if they're stuck in a heightened state in their nervous system, you're going to be fighting against that. Because it's the brain telling the body how to be. It's not a muscle that just needs to be strengthened. Where cranium sacral shines is the work on the nervous system. So I believe that's where it starts. And that's where you can see the biggest change. I had another thought, but it went away about that
0: perhaps it will come back if we turn our attention to another thought maybe that thought will come back cuz i would like to hear it if if possible i'm just going to move up move up the body a little bit so there are two other ones which you know we we often see kissing spine is something we often see thoracic kissing spine in horses that have been jumpers and lumbar kissing spine could be from anything Again, we have ways of addressing it and sometimes we can be quite successful. However, I would dearly
2: love to know more. And again, can you just
0: tell me your thoughts on on those two
1: mm-hmm. things? Well, another thought about this whole thing is we we any mammal Humans, horses, dogs, you know, whatever, can have what's called a contra coup force. Mm -hmm. So, say, you know, a horse gets runs into a fence on their shoulder, their left shoulder, and that force can travel down through the body and end up causing an issue in the right hip. So, pinpointing where some of these things are from, this is why and the craniosacral helps because we don't go in and try to fix we try to expand health mm. and plus the the point in the body that might be hurting might not have anything to do with where the the initial problem is kissing spine is very common i don't know if it's because now we can we have better imaging we can see it you know, maybe it's been there this whole time and now we can diagnose it. It's usually the, there are surgeries, but the surgeries are not a one and done deal. Usually there's problems in the entire spine, not just the thoracics or the.
0: The things that stick up off the top of the spine.
1: Things that stick up from their spine.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so there, there can be arthritis in the actual vertebrae as well <laughs> with kissing spine. And, you know, once again, I'll take it back to the nervous system. Yeah. The fluid body, the, and even, even when you do a therapeutic approach like chiropractor, chiropractic or osteopathy, it's still, it's introducing a force into the system. Yeah. And there can be a ripple effect of that. And that's where craniosacral can come in and help help those rhythms match up better. The breathing rhythms in the system.
0: Arthritis, of course, you know, one is obviously going to be seeing a lot of this. Most horses that are donated are older and have had careers, so there's wear and tear on the body, on the cartilage and on the bone, let alone you know tendons and ligaments too. With arthritis. One thing that we have seen is that what can appear to be really chronic arthritis, we often find kind of, at least symptomatically, kind of goes away when we do a lot of gentle in hand work. We, we find the same thing with a lot of the kissing spine issues, but we have to take some time over it. This is not a rushed process. There's that word again the process is the approach. But when, 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 Arthritis, for example,
2: seems to dissipate. Is
0: in fact what we think of as bone deterioration. Is it actually more tightened fascia?
1: I I wonder about these things because I've seen one of the places I teach is a YMCA camp, and they 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 have all their horses are donated. And
2: they, they're they all arthritic,
1: old, and the, the ease of movement that comes, you know, we're helping the body get back to its original source. Remember the health. We're, we're holding the whole system to help find where is it not hurt and can we expand this instead of trying to fix something. And we're also talking a lot about physical problems, and there's more than just the physical. There's the mind and the spirit as well. Indeed. And horses, and I've, I've worked with quite a few, quite a few places where they have therapeutic horses that that are donated, and they come with a lot of other stuff that's attributing to their physical problems as well.
0: One of the things which I find sometimes troublesome about going to quine conferences and such where people are are speaking is that often it's held up as a sort of abuse if horses are being kept in stables and boxes now and that sort of thing. And often the people saying this just happen to live in geographical areas of the American West where they have access to an awful lot of space. And one of the problems I have, it's not that I think they're necessarily wrong, but it's not helpful for somebody who's, say, keeping a horse in suburban New York or Frankfurt or London. and. What's available to them they're, they don't even own the facility there they're at a boarding stable they're at, you know, and they don't have power in, over the environment and so I started thinking about this quite seriously because a lot of a lot of the therapeutic riding stables we were dealing with were in urban or peri-urban areas, and why we couldn't just go to them and shame them and say, "Well, you guys suck because you know you're not in Wyoming and it's like, well, we know we're not in fucking Wyoming that's why we're trying to do that's what we're serving these kids from the local housing estate yeah so how do we make it better as best as best as we can so we started looking at how can we emulate as much as possible horses in a natural environment in herds if they have to be kept in confined areas a lot and we work with a a really good urban project in dublin in the middle of dublin you think of ireland as all green fields but this place is like right in the center of dublin Doing a a really crucial service for kids in a pretty shitty area, and we had another place in the middle of Amsterdam, and another. You know, we've had quite a few urban horse places, and I'm intrigued by these because they they suddenly are a real challenge. And so they're getting the crocked horses, and they don't have much option about how to keep them. So one thing we began to experiment with was just the emotional well being of the horse. So we said, well, what does that come down to? Really, it comes down to they've got to be in a herd, right? And if they're in a herd and they can touch up against each other, but if they can't do that all day, what's the maximum we could give them? And how could we do it? And then they was a curious. They don't want to do the same thing every day any more than we do. The axons and dendrites in their brain, you know, become rusty, just like they do in ours if, if we don't do new stuff and novel movement and blah, blah, blah. So we came up with this idea of crazy time that you could, in arenas, you turn horses out in groups and you encourage them to play, but you don't chase them around too much. You interact with them and you build playgrounds. So if the horses like to jump, well, okay, we have jumps and things like that. But we also have other things in there for enrichment, like balls that might move or other interesting objects. And then if they don't jump, well, maybe it's poles on the ground. And there's a large element of choice. They choose, a bit like kids in a playground, are they going to go up the climbing frame or aren't they? But the climbing frame needs to be there. But of course, horses are essentially playful and playful, even when they're old. And, and playfulness, of course, is well-being. When some, when a playful animal ceases to be playful, you know it's in trouble. Um, when a kid ceases to be playful, you know that kid's in trouble, or well, even an adult. So we encourage play and teaching people enough tact, equestrian tact, to keep the play going because the horses actually enjoy that interaction with the monkeys. But I, Well, what's next then? And then also to change up the playground every two, three minutes, you change the jumps a bit, you change what's on the ground a bit, you chuck a ball at them, you do this, you do that, you put some interesting object there, you take it away, just so that they're like, Whoa, what's next? And we found that if we dedicated X number of hours per week to doing this in these areas which were by no means ideal for keeping horses, everything in the horses changed, physically as well as mentally. And then we had to come up with, well, how do you make this not a time conflict? Because of course, these stables are seeing you know a lot of clients. And then we said, ah, oh, but what if that was the session where you're seeing the client? And then what if, so we, we now have a whole set of things we call crazy time, because kids want crazy time too, and adults want crazy time. And it becomes about teaching them horsemanship, or it could be about teaching them maths, because we can mark out the distances and the heights and the widths of the fences and or the materials that of the types of wood that the jumps are made from or the poles are made from or any number of things that we can do and so that that those crazy time sessions are paid sessions so there's no time conflict anymore so it's a kind of win-win-win the horse gets what they need the client definitely gets what they need and you the facility owner get what you need because not only are you serving your client but you're serving your horse and but it it was looking at this site as you said that beyond the body. And we found that the body stuff then obviously responded better to the body stuff that we were doing with the lunging and that sort of training and the the, the in-hand work. But really it seemed to me that what we were coming down to was happiness and that could take many forms. And then I, I began to look at horses that were kept in large pastures and realizing that they weren't necessarily that happy. They definitely, you know, it was more optimal than horses that were kept in boxes. But I began to see plenty of depressed horses in pastures. And then that was intriguing to us. Well, why would they be depressed in a pasture? Because surely they're getting kind of what they need. But it seemed to me that the quality of the interaction with each other and with the humans, if that was somehow lacking, that could lead to boredom. And which is a, for, a sort of form of unhappiness, even though they're eating grass. What do you think about that, this this idea it, it it seems to me more and more that that curiosity and play are really at the root of well being, and that this is something that is not really looked at in organisms of any kind, really. And where might this come into the cranial sacral and nervous system? What, what what's going on with that? Do you think?
1: I th- I think that's a, all a great idea, and when I When I trained and and studied with Harry, he he talked a lot about that. Getting the horse make helping the horse find interest in what you're doing, and be mentally engaged, and and not stressed out or not shut down. I've seen horses that lived in her uh, outside in pastures, but it was such a dysfunctional herd. They they were just difficult, difficult horses to handle. And my place in California, they lived in small paddocks because it was on the side of a mountain. And we did the best we could. And they we rarely had colics. The vets would always say, why don't you have colics here? The place down the street, they colic every week. Somebody's colicking. And there just wasn't that much there was not much injuries so I think there's a lot to that keeping them curious changing things up things up we had barrels in the arena we do all kinds of things with those and where the craniosacral comes in is it helps it helps the body let go helps the nervous system the body let go of stresses inside the system that it that it's been holding on to and and the craniosacral work is giving their nervous system a safe place to let things that have been stored deep in the cracks help those cracks open and let them out whether it's you know an injury or or some emotional thing in there that's stored that's, you know, trapped in the system, so to speak. When
0: you say in the cracks, you actually mean in cracks, like in the cracks between the plates of the, of the brain, of the of the skull? Or Metaphoric the, cracks. Metaphoric cracks. Yeah. But I guess it is true, is it not, that people say, I don't, do you think this is true? That memory is to a large degree carried in muscle? And that's why people say, Oh, you know, I did this yoga pose and then suddenly there was my grandfather. Uh, I remember my grandfather telling me this joke, you know, that I'd completely forgotten when I was five or something like that. Do you, This this idea is, I'm a bit intrigued by what you said just now about the, where the cranial sacral will come in is that it helps let go of stored stress.
1: Yes. And, and the, my training, we look at it as stored in the fluids, in the fluid body. So it goes deeper than muscle memory, deeper than cellular memory. It's, it's stored in the fluids. And if you think about, imagine that we have inside of our skin, if, if we were like a water balloon and there's different, there's slower rhythms down in, in the, deep and then as you get more surface level it gets faster. The faster rhythms are usually where the dysfunction is stored and the slower rhythms can't push that out because it's, it's trapped in there and it's, it's deeper than a muscle memory. So in a craniosacral session sometimes like I was working on a horse not too long ago And I got a a sense of, I, I had a vision of the horse just standing in the pasture, staring out into the forest. And I felt a sense of emptiness,
2: just empty. And
1: about five minutes of the horse processing this, and I was getting this vision. About five minutes later, the owner said, did I tell you about the horses that just died? And she told me about how the two oldest horses had died pretty close together. And she said, ever since they died, this mare that I was working on stands out in the pasture and just stares out into the forest. And she doesn't follow the other herd when they go to the next pasture, she just stands there and stares and situations like that happen often in a session, and the way I look at it is the the sadness or the i don't know if I want to use the word trauma, but the the what the horse went through is processing out of the system and I believe that's why I get the vision and then the owner picked it up too without realizing what she was picking up.
0: When you get that vision, do you feel, and when that horse is exhibiting that behavior, the stereo, is that the sadness going through its process, bubbling bubbling to the surface and then eventually being able to be released? Yes. And is your job to expedite that process basically to help smooth yeah, hold it. space yeah.
1: hold space to allow it to happen and by me becoming aware of it does help reinforce the system to let it go
2: have you seen a change in the map
1: Mm-hmm. yeah she and when this i've had it happen sometimes when and when things release from the horse's system, it you may feel heat, actual heat, come off right under my hands. It'll be maybe even sweaty, or these visions of, of an image of whatever they're processing. Uh, I've I've seen an image of the horse pulling back and cross ties and falling down, and when it when it releases, there's a shift in the tide that I'm surfing on in the system, it'll there'll just be a shift and everything will slow down.
2: It's this
0: thing about faster rhythms and slower rhythms. This seems to me to have a parallel in brainwave states, no? So if the accepted wisdom is that the slower your brainwave state the more functional in certain ways. So if you're tied up to an EEG machine that's measuring your brainwaves, for example, if you had epilepsy or something and they were that if you were having fits, seizures, the brain waves would be going very fast. And anything that slows them down seems to be better. And it seems that the the main uh, functional states that have been identified in a crude level are beta, which are the sort of functional cheerful, all right, as it going? Oh, it's a good job, is it? You know all right, mate. All right. You're all right. I'm all right. Type thing to alpha being, okay, now I need to get deep breath, focus. I've got to take that drop kick over the bars of the goal for this. I need to. Into it, slow my brain, slow my breathing, slow my, and that would be measured as an alpha brain state. And then, if one went a little bit further than that into a very meditative state, perhaps even slightly between sleeping and waking, that might be a theta state where people report getting a lot of inspired thought. And then, fr- when people are in deep REM sleep, delta. And it seems that if people can consciously go into delta, Like some shamans in some indigenous cultures, they've hooked up EEG machines and found that they're in waking lucid delta in their trances. That seems to be when they can almost bend reality. And now even further states, gamma states are being, it seems the more they go into this, the more they find. And of course, these are electrical currents. And these electrical currents are going through a brain, which is composed of Fascia tissue, which is composed of liquid largely and vibration cells vibrating at a distance from each other, is that what's going on when you're doing your work? That you're bringing those rhythms into those? Is it? Are you bringing those rhythms, those those vital rhythms, which might be measured in a brainwave state, might be measured in a heart rate, might be measured in? flow of cerebral spinal fluid or lymph or blood perhaps would be measured breathing might be measured in all of them at the same time. Are you bringing those into a slower resonance? And is that what allows something that you said earlier, which I found intriguing, that source of health to? be reaccessed, yes because nothing's known in the way is that what's going on
1: yeah that's exactly what's going on that's why it's so important when you learn this work to understand how to orient to the slower rhythms and there's there are documented rhythms that have been timed and it might not be Be a rhythm that you feel moving because it's too slow, but it's the total quality of that state. So there's the long tide or primary respiration, and that's the 100 second cycle rhythm that's that has been, they find references of this and all over the world, in nature, in science. There's even slower rhythms. So it's the same with the the brainwave studies, the biodynamic world. The more people get into this, the more they find deeper and slower. They call them tides, but it's more the total quality or the visions. So there's even, there's a 300 second cycle one that's been talked about. There's a 20-minute cycle one that is being talked about. And there's the rhythm that we all kind of settle in, which is a mid-tide, which is two, two and a half cycles a minute. And that one you can palpate. And then there's a cranial rhythmic impulse, which is a faster rhythm. And this might be controversial to other craniosacral people what I'm about to say, but the faster the cranial rhythmic impulse is not a, a therapeutic tide. And it's not something that the even the older osteopaths even recognized. And in this day and age, it's taught as a rhythm to look for. But in my training, it's it's taught as a rhythm of dysfunction a rhythm of a of a a dysfunctional state of the nervous system and working with the horses I I did go off and do a two-year 10-level biodynamic program for humans but working with the horses is what got me to understand the slower rhythms because they live in that and I feel a faster rhythm in them sometimes. And it's usually an area that was an acute injury or a recent, you know, fall or something, or a a recent form of body work where they put something in the system that caused a a faster rippling to happen. How do you
0: feel that rippling? How do you feel it faster or slower?
1: If it's a dysfunctional rhythm, it's a faster rhythm and I can feel it through my hands and in my in my sensories however I'm receiving the the it's it's considered a perceived sense or a felt sense.
0: Would you feel it as vibration? Would you feel it as pulse? What would you feel it as?
1: The faster dysfunctional rhythms I would feel it as a slow vibration or just an irregular motion. So the bones in our system do have a pattern of a healthy motion that they should move in. You know, like the frontal bone, the lateral edges flare in cranial rhythm. And so what I would feel in a dysfunctional pattern may be one side is not moving at all, and the other side is moving too fast, so I don't feel that fullness coming into my hands
0: and why, in some forms of cranial sacral, would they think that the faster rhythm is a good thing? I don't know do they say it's a good thing because you feel for this because
1: it It could be the The original osteopath who designed the program worked in the faster rhythms. I have seen in some of the equine osteopathy, they will feel, if they don't feel a rhythm, they go in and adjust and then feel for that rhythm. And it's the faster rhythm that they're feeling for. So they did disrupt the system to bring that rhythm. But in the biodynamic world, we work within the slower motions.
0: When I heard you talking at Warwick Summit, you talked about a 50-second rhythmic cycle. And you seemed to feel that that was fairly optimal or desirable. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and why that would be a good thing.
1: Yes, that that is what we call primary respiration. Primary and, respiration, okay. Primary respiration and it's a, a 100 second cycle with the phase changed every 50 seconds. Or minute. You can you can say it's about a minute. That is the that is the primary respiration is what biodynamic craniosacral practitioners orient to. And, and this is what we're taught is the healing rhythm that comes from nature that flows through our bodies and is measured in a 100-second cycle minute birth cycle tide.
0: I'm just looking this up here. The first thing that came up when I typed in primary respiration is good old Google. The primary respiration mechanism, PRM, tell me if you think this is true or not, is a functional unit based on the accommodative actions of cranial articular surfaces. Is a cranial articular surface The bones in your skull?
1: Maybe the craniosacral mechanism, which would be part of that, would be the bones in the skull.
0: Okay. PRM has five distinct anatomic slash physiologic components. Colon. The inherent rhythmic motion of the brain and spinal cord. Fluctuation of cerebral spinal fluid so reading between the lines of that is is what they're saying that if you're in this primary respiratory rhythm that you're talking about then your or the horse's flow of cerebral spinal fluid which we began this discussion with talking about all the reasons why that that's a good thing if it's in that rhythm is that the optimal in terms of source health? Is that where you ought to be when you're a kid and things have not yet messed you up? <laughs>
1: yeah, have not yeah. yet. Yeah, this is uh this is the yeah, this the source. It's the it's where it where where it's all at. It's the original source that's found in nature and inside of us.
0: Do and, we see these same things like in the plant kingdom? Do we see them in, in osmosis and do we see them in photosynthesis and that sort of thing? Does mm-hmm. it do we it's do we been, it reflected in other
1: Yes. It's been measured in the plant world. There's I think his name I think his first name's William Seifritz. He was a botanist from the fifties and he measured The you can look up the YouTube videos, the original videos are still on YouTube with where he studied slime mold protoplasm.
0: That was him, he was the slime mold guy.
1: Yep, William Seifrieds.
0: William, I'm typing in William. How do I spell Seifrieds?
2: Seifrieds or Seifert?
0: Sorry,
1: I thought it was Fritz, but I might be.
0: Slime mold, let me. Do I have to type in slime mold guy?
1: It, I found it. S-E-I-F-R-I-T-Z.
0: F-R-I-T-Z.
1: Seifritz on protoplasm.
2: Okay. Tell, tell us what he found.
1: He found that there was a motion within this protoplasm, and you can see in the video, it looks liquid running up the protoplasm, and it'll go one direction for 50 seconds, pause, and then it'll switch and go another direction. And they, he, they started playing with putting toxins in the mold, to destroy some of it to see what would happen in the slime mold, and they found when it regenerated that motion, it didn't pick up where it was left off, it picked up with the rest of it, and he, so he determined that it was being moved from an external source.
0: Did he, t- no, did he speculate about what that source was?
1: Not that I have found. It, it could be in some of his lectures.
0: And just so that people know what protoplasm is. Protoplasm is the colorless material comprising the living part of a cell, including the cytoplasm nucleus and other organelles. So what we're talking about there is the stuff of life right? The, the stuff that makes up one's cells. If that is being animated, it's interesting. If, if, if a botanist in the 50s was speculating that it's being moved from some outside source, are we mm-hmm. getting, is, is that what we call God?
1: That's where we can get into deeper conversations, depending on what your source is, whether it's God I could look at it as God. It, it feels like when you step into that, when you step into primary respiration, it feels like you lose sense of of a definition of body. And there's a connection to all
2: life forms. The web rather than the matrix. Is that love?
1: I think it, it can boil down to unconditional love.
0: It sounds like it. When, when I've ever asked a, a traditional healer, I've, I've worked with different ones around the world. And whenever I've asked them in whatever tradition, whatever geographical location they're in, it could be as diverse as subarctic Canada too the Kalahari, to Australian rainforest,
2: to other places, and I've said, well, what is it, this force that you're
0: using, this cerebral spinal fluid, this kundalini, this chi, this ki, this mum? I get the same answer every time. What they always say is, oh, that's easy, Ruth that's just, it's just love but no. with a certain training process you can learn to direct it
2: and i think i've heard that answer about
0: 7 or 8 times now among people who certainly were not interacting with each other over the internet <laughs> <laughs> living in huts in siberia or you know under trees in the kalahari what how, how would we know how do you know if you're breathing and existing in this minute cycle this primary respiration cycle what are the signs to look out for in yourself what are the signs to look out for in your
1: it's always there never stops it can present itself so to speak when you're in a more expanded state instead of compressed narrowed in on something there are external signs Like when I work with horses, there can be external signs like a sigh, a bird flying by, a breeze. It's a very quiet state and time stands still. You totally lose track of time. It's very connected. It feels palpable. So it feels like... The air around us instead of feeling you know airy and it, feel, it it feels thick and moves almost like a slow ocean and every cell and the body sinks up with that motion it's the the best place to explore it is for me is either in the woods where it you're surrounded by trees, or in the ocean. You're know, out in nature. It's do not. Know, really...
0: Do you know you're entering it? I, I, it just happened to me while you were talking. You know, sometimes you do one of those involuntary, phase mm-hmm. <gasps> breath, and and you didn't do it because you were looking to do it. It just kind of happened as a reflex. It's mm-hmm. that release, and you feel in that good place. It's yeah, that a return into that primary respiration, point, a more agitated state.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah. it would
0: seem to me then that what you're talking about, we started with the well-being of horses in the therapy world, but of course you know this is what we're looking for if we're in the therapy world in our clients, of course, and of course it if we're we're the ones responsible for the well-being of the horses ultimately. And if we're also responsible for as much of the well-being of the human uh, as it comes under our hands or under our care, as is possible in that time that we have them, it would seem that, again, the horse can't transmit that well-being if they don't have it. And we can't transmit that well-being very well if we don't have it. So it seems to me that what you're talking about with the cranial sacral might be threefold useful
2: for the horse, for the client.
0: And of course, for us who are connecting those two mm-hmm. and what's going on. If someone is, is listening to this podcast and says, well, okay, that will make sense to me. Great. What's my next step? How do I, I've got it, I'm, I'm, I'm running a stable, I'm busy. This is yet another thing I now have to think about. I'm not going to get stressed about de stressing. Yeah. What is the least stressful way that someone could go about engaging with this equine craniosacral work and indeed with a crossover to the human that could cause the least disruption to a busy week? Like, what, what would you suggest people start to do?
1: You mean like, In their own daily life or finding a cranial practitioner to come in and help?
0: Yeah. I mean, both, I should imagine, because one predicates the other, no?
1: Yes. I would would say look for a craniosacral practitioner. You could even Google (laughs) a human practitioner and see if they work on horses. And I would even go a little further and say, look for a biodynamic craniosacral practitioner.
2: A biodynamic craniosacral
0: practitioner. Okay. So what we need to do is go online when you're not while you're driving your car, listening to this podcast, but when you've parked your car, go online and look for a biodynamic craniosacral practitioner somewhere in your hood? Yes. Are there a lot of them? Are they easy to find?
1: They're probably easier to find in Europe than the U.S., but there is a school, a biodynamic craniosacral school in the U.S., so they're becoming more available.
0: Where is that school?
1: They're all over. It's called, of course, I can't remember what it's called. My human teacher teaches for them. I can't remember. It's like biodynamic.
2: Can we look it up quickly?
1: Craniosacral of North America. There's one in the UK. Michael Kern has one in the UK.
0: Michael Kern. Is that K-E-R-N?
1: K-E-R-N. Biodynamic. There's all kinds of people. There's actually going to be a Breath of Life conference in Colorado in September.
0: Breath of Life conference, Colorado, September. I'm writing that down. Where in Colorado?
1: Um, It's in Estes Park. Okay. My friend and teacher has a, or had, but it's still out there, a podcast called the craniosacral podcast okay and he interviews all the leaders in the industry and you can learn a lot about it by going on his podcast there I... are a couple
0: okay go ahead sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you
1: it's and his name's ryan halford and it's called the craniosacral podcast
0: the craniosacral podcast and I've okay. I found your breath of life conference, and this is the Biodynamic Cranial Sacral Therapy Association of North America. Yes. Okay. And then you say, is it Michael Kern K E R N in the K E
1: R N? He has a school in the UK.
0: Okay. And then I suppose if we type that in for other countries, we might find it.
1: Yeah. If you type in biodynamic craniosacral you'll find either through the association there'll be a list of people or it'll pop up
0: and if this person if one found this this let's say i'm sitting here in b in germany and let's say i found i will of course quickly go google someone after this podcast is done and probably have them come out to my horses and me and then some of my clients is somebody do, do do the the people who are doing it on horses need a special horse training or is it sort of ubiquitous across mammals?
1: It's ubiquitous across mammals. I've done because I've most of my training is human. There aren't a lot of equine trainers, and there's specifically. I mean, there may be a couple of us that focus on biodynamics. It's it's a little bit more of a deeper part of craniosacral Mm -hmm. Um, But you can learn it on humans and just think about the orientation of the bones is different. Or the different I've I've worked on zoo animals, deer, chickens. (laughs) I've worked on all kinds of animals. Dogs, cats. Right goats cows
2: you have a very chilled out husband
1: he's pretty he's pretty calm he's got more he's he gets has more nervous energy than I do but I can calm him down pretty quick
0: yeah. so <laughs> great so he's got it on tap well, you, just, you just adjust his his frontal lobe I just
1: start talking slower and, and I could just see him kind of
0: <laughs> you have a vision of him sitting in a cafe with a beer in his hand.
1: Yes. <laughs> under the
0: sunlight of vine leaves or something. Oh, there he is.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Great. <laughs> if people want to contact you, obviously you have a lot of insights into this, particularly with horses and, you know, in, in our world, the sequined assisted world, we're always looking for that win, 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 something that serves the horse, something that serves the client, something that serves the practitioner, because there's also a lot of burnout. It's, 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 uh, it's not just the horses that, you know, get broken. It's, it's also the people working in the field. How do people find you and uh, contact you, Shay?
1: I have a website. It's equinebalance.net.
0: Equine balance, or one word,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: dot net. Okay. And
1: I do have a a Facebook business page, which is the same along with my name. And I try to stay active on that and write up thoughts and things that people can think about when they're around their horses or just in life in general. And that's Equine Balance by Shay Stewart.
0: This is on Facebook. Equine Balance by J S H E A Stuart with a W. Stuart. Like the Scottish Mm -hmm. royal family who were the Catholic branch of the English royal family of the same name in the 17th century who then launched the catholic rebellions in the 17th and 18th century against the british crown who had turned protestant at that point and uh, caused the uh, centralization of government in england to then regulate the british empire it was the stuarts who oh that. really yeah yeah the it, and that was the age of enlightenment in in england so the the stuart dynasty came in after the tudors the French, Scottish. That was James the after Elizabeth the who was a bit paranoid and anti-witches. And he was the guy who sent. He was the guy who sent the and didn't like religious extremists. He sent the first religious extremists out on the May, a vote called the Mayflower, after putting them in a in a prison called the the Clink Jail in the South Bank in England. And they thought maybe we should get these guys out of England and they can go do their stuff to each other and the Native Americans. So pack them off to the New World. And so now they're considered to be very blue-blooded in America, but actually they were political agitators um, in, in England. And then he was the Protestant line, and that was why he was allowed to come onto the throne in England, because the father of his predecessor, Elizabeth I, had turned English England Protestant so that he could divorce Catherine of Aragon and try and get a son with Anne Boleyn. It didn't work, by the way, so he cut Anne Boleyn's head off. And then
1: As they did back then. As
0: they did back then, repeatedly. And then the he died with no male issue. So that created a problem. And there were two branches of the Stuart line. Sorry, I'm wrong. He did die with male issue and he and his his son was Charles the but Charles the was a secret Catholic and fell foul of parliament. And that then the English Civil War happened are the Stuarts, and they cut his head off. We were the first country in Europe to cut the king's head off. And then we realized that that didn't do us any good. We just got a different bunch of gangsters in. So, after they had dealt with Oliver Cromwell and his gangsters under a republic briefly, we brought back the monarchy under the Stuarts, which was Charles II, the Merry Monarch, who was the great patron of the arts and sciences, and founded a little thing called the Hudson Bay Company and a little thing called the East India Company but was also a secret Catholic and a bon vivant. And he left no legitimate male issue. So then there were wars, civil wars between the French Scottish Stuarts and the distant cousins of the Stuarts that the aldermen of the city of London would bring in to sit on the throne at any one time, William of Orange and people like that. And all of them failed to have sons. So eventually (laughs) They had to bring in some German cousins called the House of Hanover, and that's the Georgian period. Those are the Georges. And, of course, the Stuart line, financed by France, who was always going to agitate a little bit to make life difficult for England, would occasionally field, once a generation, uh, a descendant of the original royal line to have a go at the English throne. And the last one happened in 1745 under Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charles Stuart, Charles Edward Stuart who rallied the Scottish clans and they got within a hundred miles of London. And that's when the British government said no more. And they smashed the Scottish clans, cut down all the forests in the highlands, sent all the inhabitants out to the Americas. That's why the Appalachian hillbillies have muck in then and mack in their names. And mm-hmm. versus indentured labourers, and then they went and ran hogs in the in the in the Appalachians. And if they were lucky, that's what happened to them. If they weren't hanged on and quartered. And they created the patchwork countryside that we see today in the British countryside of hedgerows to create a landowning, paying middle class that was loyal to the crown that unlike those pesky aristocrats with private armies that would occasionally get drunk and decide to have a crack at the crown. And so there you are, Shea Stewart, that's your history. Via the <laughs> by the Cherokees, who of course met, well, because they of course met those Scots-Irish emigres who were thrown out there by the British when they were tramping up and down the Appalachians and they encountered people like the Cherokees and the Lumbees and the Iroquois and intermarried with them.
1: You're amazing. It's like walking history book.
0: It's just my shtick. I I like history. There's many things I don't. amazing. I just happen to know that small thing. It's my cerebral spinal fluid at work.
1: (laughs) It must have a really good flow. (laughs)
0: Well, I guess like anyone, when it's interested in something, it sort of perks up a bit. Yeah. Uh, including, I, 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 find, I find the whole subject of cerebral spinal fluid fascinating. And the further I go into it, the more I do see that it does indeed seem that the mystic core of all religions in the world seem to deal with allegories around this process of cerebral spinal fluid. And the middle ventricle of the brain and the pineal gland and the interplay between the pineal and the pituitary gland and so on and so forth. And I really would encourage listeners to dive down that rabbit hole because it informs daily life in a really interesting way because daily life is the rhythms of one's body. I mean, what else can it be really? And therefore the rhythm of our horse's bodies. And it makes it all a bit more interesting than just saying he's got a stiffness in the stifle. Yes. I, I love your approach of saying, well, yes, he does have a stiffness in the siphon And yes, we can look at things that will ameliorate that on a, on a muscular and even fascial viewpoint. But I love the idea that, you have, that you're talking about going deeper than that and saying, ah, oh, but if those joints and those fascia themselves are being governed by a flow of effectively liquid within the body, which we're all composed of, which we know we're composed of, we know we're all mostly water. And that if we can get that flow right, then a lot of those things are going to fix themselves. I mean, that does make sense because if the the fluids around my stiff leg from that wrench that it got back in 2018 are held in a liquid that is not blocked, then it's going to ease that stiffness. And that does make sense to me. It makes absolute sense to me. But I've, of course, seen it at work. I've I've seen good cerebral, or craniosacral people at work. And that's why I was wanting to get you on here. Because I think with ho- with we horse people, we we've been looking at things from a sort of anatomical veterinary viewpoint for a long time, which while useful and helpful, is not the whole picture. and there are other, other forces at work. And, and what's interesting too is as you say that the people that came up with this were doctors, and a lot of the best vets I know look very closely at the stuff that you're talking about, because with their knowledge of anatomy and physiology, they, they're not coming at it with prejudice. They, they're coming at it from a practical. Viewpoints. So if people go to equinebalance.net or they go on Facebook and they see Equine Balance by Shea Stewart, not the Shea Stewart that challenged the British crown, but the Shea Stewart that's going to make your horse feel better so that your horse will then be able to cavalry charge the British better and knock those red coats over. What would be, We, we we've now gone about the length of a podcast. There are more things I would like to ask you particularly about the psychic spiritual side of it all. And I'm sure that a lot of the listeners will have questions. I'm going to encourage those listeners, and by all means send your questions direct to Shay because you'll find her on that website. But if you also direct questions to me, then I can collect those questions and we can have her back on. Would you come?
1: That'd be great. There there there's so much more we could talk about. How horses hold human trauma or human issues. Um, yeah, there's so much more. Oh, we
0: definitely, about. we definitely have to have that one. That yeah. sounds like two hours right there. Yes. All right. Then I'm officially asking you, would you please come back and talk I about would that? I'd right?
1: okay. love to. I, okay. I could talk about this stuff all day, every day. And so I'm always happy when there's someone interested.
0: How do horses hold human trauma? And
2: what can we do about it? Okay. We need
0: to know. In that case, would you would you consent to come on sometime again in the next three months? Because I'm now my ass Yeah. Yeah.
2: All
0: right. So let's just ask the listeners quickly. Hey listeners, do you want to learn how horses hold human trauma? and what we can do about it. Whoa, that was like deafening.
2: They yeah, want to I've heard that. Of
1: yeah. We could talk about how things are held and other, you know, I, I, I can talk about experiences I've had with receiving craniosacral and things I went in that I thought I was helping and it ended up being from something completely different. We can talk about Psychic, spiritual stuff, visions of, of all kinds of stuff.
2: <laughs> that
1: that There's all kinds of stories around that.
0: Okay, we'll go firmly into the woo. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right, it's official. I'd like to do it before Christmas if possible. Can we? Yeah. You're busy. Yeah. Actually, but yeah.
1: I can always find time somewhere. So, yes.
0: Grand. All right. Well, I shall look forward to it. Shay, thank you so much for this. Massively enlightening. I'm going to go and consider my horse's cranial sacral fluid, and I'm going to look for a practitioner. And I'm going to see if I can coax you out to help me a little bit because I know you come back and forth from Europe a little bit. I'm grateful. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: I'm I'm grateful. This was such a joy and such a treat and such an honor as well. So. I really appreciate your interest in asking me and this. Thank you. <laughs> this was well, great.
0: I'm sure we, we all feel honored too. So round two will be within about probably 10 weeks or so chaps. So buckle up. We'll go into how horses hold human trauma because how can they not? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how can they not? Yeah know what we can do about it because that's our field
2: yeah the
0: better my horses feel the better they can help others yes and to do that in a way without guilt and shame i mean that that that's something that i found you know off-putting sometimes when talking to people that are or claim to be animal communicators where, where i'm skeptical of the human not not of the fact that people can communicate with animals i think that people absolutely can but i'm not sure that everyone who says they can can and the, the the people who say they can and there's that there's that slight note of and it's because you suck smacks of manipulation to me because it's one of those things that's it's it's intangible you can't prove it you can't you know so you what one could use that in a manipulative way if one wasn't coming from a pure place that said i've also seen shamans in the kalahari turn themselves into leopards we can talk about that, you know, and what what that. So it's not that it can't happen, but what they would say, the animal is saying is usually got nothing to do with something a human is doing wrong. You know, it's it's a bigger picture than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is
1: a much bigger picture. And one thing everyone can, could go out and do today is take some time, get out of your thinking brain, Get into your heart space and put your hand on your heart, on, on your horse, and just expand your heart space and watch and see what happens.
2: I'm going to do that tomorrow. Anywhere on the horse is good.
0: Anywhere mm-hmm. they accept the touch.
1: Yep, wherever they're comfortable. Okay. I- to, I I like in the back on their pelvis. You can touch them there. That way you're not zeroed in too much on their head.
2: Mm.
1: We we narrow our focus too much on things, and that can that can feel like pressure.
0: Well, sure, it's what predators do. It's what we do before we make our pounce and kill. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I I feel it when I get craniosacral by someone who doesn't know how to read the system or expand out uh-huh. i can lead with a headache if they're too focused in on the bone that they have their hand on okay i don't like it it's too much pressure
2: okay do you tell them do you communicate that
1: it depends i, I don't usually go to those those anymore i don't I kind of, the last one I went to, I had the feeling if I said that, I don't know, if she would know what I was talking about.
2: Mm.
1: Like if I said, stop thinking about my sphenoid bone, expand out to the horizon somewhere. I don't know if that would make sense.
0: <laughs> okay. So that's what we're going to do, listeners. We're going to go to our horses tomorrow. But I'll hand on in a place that's not
2: too monkey fixated so maybe
0: we'll avoid the head and as Shea says suggests perhaps we'll look for the somewhere around the sacrum if that seems okay to the horse and then we're going to expand out right
1: expand out don't leave expand out from your heart
0: expand out from Stay
1: your connected to your heart and expand out you don't even have to think about the horse just think about that Space.
2: Okay. Just expand out from the heart while happening mm-hmm. to have a hand on a horse. Yes. Okay.
1: And sounds re- Tell me what happened. I will. Yeah, and anyone out there, send me a note. At, tell me what happened. I like to hear.
0: Okay. What should they send you a note on? What's the email address?
1: Oh, Shay. S-H-E-A at equinebalance.net.
0: Shea at equinebalance.net. Okay. Go put your hand on your horse in not too focused a monkey intensity way. Check in with the heart. And then without making it too intellectual, expand out a bit and see what happens. Yeah. Okay. And then it, it re-
1: the horse responds.
0: Yeah, the horse responds. Okay.
2: That sounds like a good starting point. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. It's this is a very difficult podcast to, to press the end button on. So let's think of it like a pause button for the next one. Cause I could, I could keep going all night.
1: I know. I know. I could too
0: but there's a lot to think of. I'm going to go walk the dogs now and think about this. So you give me lots to think about.
1: Good. Yeah. And then we'll have more to talk about.
0: Mm. Very well. All right. Well, until then. Sounds mm. good. <laughs> Try and stay out of the heat. I know how hot it is over there in Texas.
1: Yeah. I don't even want to go outside.
0: No, I bet you don't. <laughs> I to live there. I know. All right. Yeah. Have, have a beautiful rest of the day. Bye. Hi. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy to do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to RupertIsaacson.com See you on the next show and please remember to press subscribe and share.